This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ, Wheeler area, located at 1500 South Allen L. Bean Boulevard in Wheeler, Texas. Our regular meeting times are at 10.30 a.m. and 2.30 p.m. each Sunday. Come join us as we seek to worship God in spirit and in truth. The running theme this week has been about God's truth being the only truth and the most reliable and we must turn to God for the answers to questions in life and all those sorts of things, the absoluteness of God's truth. And I want to continue an affirmation of that concept this evening by looking at the testimony from the other side. God is reliable and he proves himself reliable. We've talked about principles earlier in the week that demonstrate the reliability of God and what I want to show you this evening is the utter unreliability, the utter dishonesty of the alternative. We're going to talk about the, pro the broken promise. You can think of this as a promise from Satan, and Satan as an individual making a promise and breaking that promise. You can think of it as a promise made by sin, and sin breaking that promise. If you want to... Reimagine it just a little bit. You can think of this as the voice of the world and the promise that the world makes in the world's call to pull us away from God and his values. Whichever way you view it, and at every turn we see a promise that's made and a promise that's broken. And when a promise is broken and persistently broken, that compromises the reliability of that witness, of that testimony, of that side of the story and compels us to turn in the other direction for answers. And when we turn in the other direction for answers away from the broken promise, we turn to God. I'd like to illustrate that process by telling a, at least a brief framework of a story about some business transactions that I had going on with a couple of partners in the course of our business transactions, we did what you do a lot of times in business. We dealt with a commercial lender. And in the course of our doings, the commercial lender made certain promises and commitments as to what he would and would not do and what the institution that he represented would and would not do. In the course of time, he revealed by his failure to keep those promises that he hadn't been honest. I talked to him about those things and I confronted him about those things personally to give him an opportunity to make good on his word. We can make mistakes. We can misspeak. So in the name of fairness and kindness, I gave him an opportunity to say, well, I shouldn't have said that or, well, I misspoke or, well, I'll go ahead and do what I said or, whatever he wanted to do to try to spackle the cracks. And he doubled down. In a way, I won't go into details. Just suffice to say, he doubled down. And so the confrontation kept going on until it culminated in an email where I gave him all the quotations of all his previous correspondence with us and the things that he had promised that he had failed to do and then I told my partners, I'm done. If y'all want to keep talking to him or whatever, that's up to you. When it comes time to write the check, you just tell me how much to write, but I'm done with him. 
And I was. And I am. I left that bank. I hadn't gone back. I hadn't looked back. It wasn't because I was mad or bearing a grudge. It's because I don't trust him. And I don't trust him because he, he proved over and over and over to be less than honest. That's disappointing, isn't it? Really wished we could have restored something there. Nobody wants things to be that way, but that's how it was. Sometimes business turns out like that. That's what I'm trying to get us to do with the voice of the world tonight. I want you to understand that the voice on the opposite side of God that's calling us to do what we want, do what pleases us, follow our own standards, ignore the standards of Scripture, etc., etc., I'm calling upon us tonight to realize and hold deep a conviction, a life-governing conviction that that side has been, is, and will continue to lie to us. And therefore, that voice from the world is devoutly to be ignored and disregarded. And we must turn from that voice. And when we turn from that voice, we turn to the voice of God and we accept him as the ultimate and absolute standard of truth and right and wrong. And everything else, well, just let those who choose that make that choice. We're not going to have anything to do with it. So let's proceed then with our study. The broken promise of sin starts with Satan because he is a liar. We've touched on this earlier in our studies this week. John 8 and 44, Jesus told some of his opponents in the first century there, you are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there's no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. <clears throat> so Jesus assures us of the premise of our study tonight that the voice of the world and the things they call upon us to do are a lie because those things ultimately come from Satan. And not only is he a liar, but he is the father of lies. Every lie that is told, every lie finds its root in Satan. Young people, think about that the next time you're tempted to lie to your parents. Young people, Think about that the next time you're tempted to lie to your parents. You follow through with that lie. You just sat on Satan's egg until it hatched, and that chick is yours, and you've got a problem. The broken promise originates with Satan. In 2 Corinthians 11 and 3, Paul expressed his concerns <clears throat> about that system of lies that comes from Satan and the threat that posed to the church. 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 3, But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Let's think about this for a minute. He said, I'm concerned that as the serpent, that's the Satan, Genesis 3, beguiled Eve. That word beguiled means deceived. So just like he deceived Eve through his subtlety, through his trickery, I'm concerned that your minds would be corrupted. Confer corrupted from what? From the simplicity that's in Christ. 
Now let's think of the word simplicity. Sometimes in the King James Version, simplicity doesn't mean something that's simple as opposed to something that's complicated. Sometimes simplicity means something that's single as opposed to duplicity. Duplicity is doubleness or double might, two-faced like that. And that's what he's talking about here. I'm concerned that you would be corrupted by the deceitfulness of sin and be turned from the singleness that is in Christ. Christ's message, his voice, consistently tells you the same thing every time you ask him. And the world is all over the page, changing at every turn with every new whim and every new passion that comes along in the corrupt heart of the one who's speaking in the moment. It's so obvious we can't depend on ourselves and our own voice because that voice is ever-changing. How long will you trust the banker that tells you something different every time you ask them the same question? How long would you do business with that person before you finally said, you know what, I'm not going to deal with them anymore. How well would you trust the person who every time you ask them the same question a thousand different ways, every time you approach them, they kept telling you the same thing? That builds trust, doesn't it? That builds confidence. That's simplicity as opposed to duplicity. That's honesty as opposed to lies. And that's what Christ represents. And that's why God is the supreme alternative to the voice of the world. Revelation 12 and 9 discussing Satan's work says the great dragon was cast out that old serpent called the devil and Satan which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Now without getting into the depth of what that passage is talking about suffice to say it seems to be kind of with symbolic language a review of the story of Genesis 3. And I'll just leave that for your consideration, but whatever we make of it, we see a clear picture here that Satan deceives the whole world. So you're talking about a situation and trying to figure out if somebody is honest or dishonest, and you might say to a close friend in confidence, trying to kind of keep things discreet, you might say, you know, I'm afraid they lied to me a couple of times. And somebody else might say, yeah, I caught them in a lie too. And somebody else might say, well, they never lied to me, so I don't know, you know. And the, so the discussion might go. You can imagine a discussion like that. Satan lied to everybody. There's not anybody out there he hasn't lied to. He's got a track record, and it's consistent. It's consistently wrong. It's consistently misleading. It's consistently damnable. It is the voice of all lies. So let's look at these lies and the promise of Satan and sin and the world and analyze that promise versus the reality of what it delivers. We go back now 
to the story in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said, We may uh, freely eat of the trees, uh, fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise. And she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Now let's look at the promise. What did Satan promise? What did sin promise? What did the voice of self promise? Well, this will taste good. This is pleasant to my eyes. <coughs> this will make me godlike in my wisdom. This is a good thing. That was the promise. And that promise is based on the summary of sin in 1 John 2 and verse 16 where the apostle John warns about the world, the voice of the world that we're talking about tonight. He said all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So on the one side, you've got the voice of the world in all of its deception, and then on the other side, you've got the voice of God in all its simplicity and singleness and honesty. The two things we're considering this week as we think about the absolute truth of God. And look at what the voice of the world appeals to, the lust of the flesh. She saw that the tree was good for food. This is going to taste good. The lust of the eyes, it was pleasant to the eyes. The pride of life. Tree to be desired to make one wise, godlike in your wisdom. That's what sin promised. That's what self promised. That's what Satan promised. Let's look at the reality. What did it deliver? James 1, verse 14 and 15 talks about the process of temptation. When he said, every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. So the process of sin starts out with lust. That's a natural desire. Then that lust conceives. That's where it becomes a sinful lust, desiring something that's forbidden. And that brings about sin, which ends in death. <coughs> what does sin promise? Joy, fun, pleasure, etc. A meaningful and happy life. I'm going to go do what makes me happy. What makes my life meaningful. What does sin deliver? It delivers death. You know, when Adam and Eve sinned, they brought sin and death upon themselves and upon the world. Death in the sense of separation from God, but also death in the sense of mortality. Now we have to grow old, get sick, and die. 
You know, the very next chapter after the fall and the sin, Genesis chapter 4, we read about the death of their son. I guess that's just about as bad as it gets when you lose your own child. I, I don't know. I wonder how good that the memory of that fruit looked when they learned that their son Abel was dead. I wonder how they remembered this, the taste of the fruit on their palate if it was still sweet or if it was bitter and sour when they found their son's body. I wonder how wise and godlike they felt when their family faced that kind of crisis and ruin. Look at the contrast between what the world promises versus what sin delivers and learn. For you and I will be tempted again. We've been tempted before and we'll be tempted again. And in that hour of temptation when it seems so real and so reasonable and so plausible, we've got to make ourselves focus on the consequence of sin all the way down to the death that it brings and understand that the salesman is lying to us. In Genesis 3, verse 17 through 19, to Adam he said, because thou hast hearkened to the voice of thy wife and hast eaten of the tree of which I command thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow thou shalt eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. And in the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return to the ground. For out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. <clears throat> God gives Adam and Eve a summary statement of what had been delivered to them on account of their sin. And it boils down to this simple thing. Life just got really difficult and then you're going to die. That sounds like a pretty cynical summation of the matter, doesn't it? We understand that in Christ and with God's blessings, there are many joys in this world. But we also understand that from time to time we face seasons of sorrow where things become difficult. And it goes right down to our effort to earn our bread. It becomes heartbreakingly difficult. Everybody grab a great big box of Kleenex. I'm going to tell you a really sad story about my effort to produce food. A few years ago, it's when we were still living on the South Plains, I set out to grow some Brussels sprouts. I'm sure everybody here joins me in loving Brussels sprouts, right? Who doesn't love that? I was gone and traveled for a while right as they were really beginning to make. And I was excited thinking, when I come home, I'm going to find these Brussels sprouts ready to harvest and ready to eat. And I got back, 
And I went out there at the first light that was available to me, and I was so excited, and those things were covered with aphids from head to toe. I was heartbroken. Going and crying now. I got so mad, I went in the shed, and I got my propane torch. And I, I did this, Beverly. I took, you know, God said I can't get revenge on my fellow man, but he didn't say I couldn't get revenge on aphids. So I just went up and down those plants. The neighbor must have thought I looked like an idiot because I was, I was enjoying it. Up and down every plant, roasting Brussels sprouts and aphids. Neither were edible when I was done, but I felt better. That's a small story that I got over that represents, let that represent. Sometimes it's not that small nuisance. Sometimes it's the old boy standing on the brow of the hill watching a creek that got out of bank wash out his living for the year, and he's trying to figure out what to tell the banker. I've had people in my family live that story. I think you probably have too. Sometimes that's people going through what some of your neighbors are going through right now, looking at a pile of rubble and a strand of damage, trying to figure out where their stuff is and what they're going to do and how they're going to rebuild or if they're going to rebuild. Sometimes it's things that really matter. And all of that boils down to what God told Adam was going to happen in Genesis 3. Because of what you did, things are going to get really difficult. That's the reality of what the voice of the world delivers. In Genesis 3, verse 23 through 24, Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground whence he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. God drove out the man. That's not a, hey, won't you come go with me? That's driving someone out forcefully from his presence. The beautiful garden paradise they had once known as their unrivaled home was now just a fading memory. That's what sin delivered in its reality. In Isaiah 59, verse 1 and 2, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither is ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his faith from you that he will not hear. This is Isaiah the prophet explaining how that sin separates us from God. God warned Adam and Eve, The day you eat that, you'll die. And the kind of death that he included in that warning was spiritual death or spiritual separation from God. And the moment they sinned, their sin separated them from God. And God proved that by driving them out of the garden, didn't he? That's pretty rough. That's a difficult reality. What did sin promise? It promised pleasure. But what did it deliver? It delivered pain. Sin promised joy, but it delivered sorrow. The voice of self, the voice of the world, the voice of Satan said, I'll exalt you and make you godlike. 
What it delivered was the humiliation of God driving you from his presence. When sin got done with them, they weren't more godlike. They were further from God than they ever had been. It promised fulfillment. And it delivered emptiness. It promised pleasant fruit. And it delivered aphids. I don't know, if you hate aphids as bad as I do, that, that illustration speaks to you, okay? At every turn, very small and so large it's overwhelming and heartbreaking, we find evidence of the reality, the painful reality that sin delivers. The voice of the world has been proven to be untrue. We cannot trust it. This is true because of the nature of sin. Sin by its very nature is deceitful. Ephesians 4 and 22 warns the Christian with clarity that you put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust. When a man's tempted, he's drawn away from his own lust and enticed. That lust is deceitful. That passion is a lie. It promises pleasure, but it brings pain. In Hebrews 3 and 13, he said, Exhort one another daily while it is called a day, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. The thing of it is, is once you start believing lies, it gets easier to lie to you. Once you start getting tricked, you get easier to be tricked. Because in time, that heart becomes hardened. And the thing that hardens it is the same thing that lures it in in the first place. It's hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. You ever see one of those guys that he puts a nail in the wood and he raises his hand and you're hunting for the hammer and there is no hammer and he takes the heel of his hand and he just starts driving that nail in. You ever see one of those guys? I have no interest in figuring out how to do that. I know what they do. I just don't want to do it. They don't start out driving nails like, you know, that wouldn't end too well. They start out doing lesser things until they get a callus down there. And then they do more difficult things until that callus thickens. And they just keep ramping it up until finally there's such a callus that's actually unnaturally large on the heel of their hand. And when you look close, that's their hammer. And they can drive a, like an eight or ten penny nail, maybe bigger, I don't know with the heel of their hand. That's calloused. That's hardened. That's a picture of the heart that's yielded so repeatedly to sin that it's hardened and it's deceived and it's bought the lie to the point that it'll argue this is the greatest thing since sliced cheese. And you need to do what you want. You need to follow your heart and listen to the voice of the world and don't listen to all that God stuff and read all that in the Bible. That's, well, that's hate. You don't need that. You need this over here. And with that, the sinner adds their voice to Satan's, joining the chorus of corrupting lies that grow the deceit of the human heart. Sin by its very nature is deceitful. And sin by its very nature is destructive. 
as we have seen. Proverbs 13 and 15, good understanding giveth favor, but the way of the transgressor is hard. Psalms 107 and verse 17, fools because of their transgression and because of their iniquities are afflicted. Both passages show us that sin brings a natural consequence that is destructive. And we see that so clearly in the story of Adam and Eve in the book of Genesis. Proverbs 29 and 23 warns that a man's pride shall bring him low, but honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. What does pride promise to do? Exalt you, make you feel big, make you feel better, make you feel powerful, make you feel important. What does it ultimately deliver? Humiliation. Just ask Adam and Eve. As with heads bowed, they hurried forth from the garden at the behest, know the demand of God who placed angels with swords there to keep the way and not let them back. That is the humiliation that followed the pride of rebellion against God. 2 Peter 2, 18 and 19 says, Speaking of those who add their voice to Satan's that, that, that insist upon sin, for when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through much wantonness. Those who were clean escape from them who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome of the same, he's brought into bondage. That voice of the world promises liberty, but it brings the destruction of bondage, of slavery, and it brings shame. We touched on this earlier in the week. I want to revisit this to keep this thought clear in our mind. David's sin with Bathsheba. He grieved about it in Psalms 51 in verse 3 when he said, I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. <coughs> Behold the psychological damage of sin. My sin is ever before me. He can't get it out of his mind. When he shuts his eyes, when he tries to think of anything else, all he can see all he can hear, all that he can consider is I can't believe I made that mistake. And would you look at the ruin that it's brought? That's the psychological damage of, sh of sin, shame. We read earlier this week about Psalms 38 depicting this where David talked about there being no soundness in my flesh because of thine anger, neither is there any rest in my bones because of my sin, for mine iniquities are gone over my head as a heavy burden they are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and are corrupt because of my foolishness. I am troubled, I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long for my loins are filled with a loathsome disease and there's no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and sore broken. I have roared by reason of the disquietness of my heart. 
We described this passage the other day as David's dramatic depiction of the psychological damage that sin did to him. It hurts inside and out, y'all, in the shame that it brings. The world's message is a lie, not just because of the nature of sin, but because of the nature of the flesh. And that's why sin's promise is always a broken promise. Ecclesiastes 1 and verse 8. All these things are full of labor. Man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Listen to Solomon. Listen to him. Describe the brokenness and the insatiability of our flesh. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. There's never enough. There's never enough. With Solomon, you could look at it with regard to his wealth, with regard to his projects and his achievements. We could analyze all of that and make sense out of it. It might take some time. Maybe that would be a good study for some of you to go through at your leisure. But I want to think about it just as it relates to the women in his life. If you're familiar with this story, you know that he had a thousand. 700 wives, 300 concubines. There was a day when he had one. But there's no such thing as enough because there's always another one that's pretty that you haven't had yet. And so then there's two. And before long, two becomes ten. And can you really have a meaningful personal relationship with ten different wives? Some guys are still trying to figure out one. But you know when you've got 10, you know what you don't have? You don't have number 11. And she's beautiful. And it's promising. And so you add her to the harem. Until 11 becomes 111. And that's not enough. And it's not enough because with the flesh there never is enough. And so it grows from 111 until there was 500. I wonder if at some point in there he was starting to scratch his head and figure this out. Apparently not. Because when you're on 500 and you thought by now this was going to work, but reality is hitting you cold in the face and waking you up. But, you know, it hadn't worked yet. I think I'll try more of the same thing. <laughs> Ain't we smart? And so he reaches and he gets 501. Until one day it's 1,000. And somewhere along the way, go back and read Ecclesiastes 2. Somewhere along the way, he looked back at it all, and he got depressed. The money, the women, 
the projects, the buildings, the animals, the trees, the things that he built and achieved, the earthly knowledge and wisdom that he accumulated, and he looked at it all, and he was lower than a snake's belly in a wagon rut because it was supposed to work, but it didn't. And it didn't because it couldn't. And it couldn't because it's never enough. Whether you're counting coins or lining up the ladies or something else altogether different that appeals to you or appeals to me more than Solomon's problems appeal to him. Whatever it is, there's never enough. God help us to believe that and know that down deep in our hour of trial. Ecclesiastes 5 and 10, he that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with increase. This is also vanity. Ecclesiastes 6 and 7, all the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not filled. Both passages joining the previous one in assuring us that the Nature of the flesh is such that there's never enough. That's why the promise of sin's pleasure is broken as it's coming out of the gate. I'd like to offer you a job. It's a good paying job from one point of view. But before we get into the discussion of the pay, I want to tell you a little bit about your boss. Every day you go into work, you'll give it your all. Because your boss is just one of those people that there's something about them, you just want to give them your all. There's some people like that. They've just got something about them that just makes you want to give them everything you got. So you're going to go into work every day and you're going to give your boss your everything you've got and your boss is going to come to you at the end of the day and they're going to come in your office and you're going to look up looking for a thank you or a pat on the back and they're going to look you in the eye and say it wasn't enough. I expect more. So you come back today answering to the same magnetism that brought you there on day one and you give it everything you got and you give it more and you pour everything into it, everything that you are, everything that you do and every day the obsession grows. I've got to make this boss happy. I know I can make this boss happy. I will please this boss. It will be enough. And every day the boss comes back and breaks your heart and says, it's not good enough. I demand more. Well, no, nobody wants that. You don't care what it pays. You know, I said it pays pretty good from one perspective. I could bother explaining that. It doesn't matter. You're not interested. I want you to go home tonight and I want you to go get in front of the mirror and say hello to the boss that you'll never satisfy. Self cannot be pleased. We're broken. You ever hear the expression? I've used it often. People don't quit jobs. They quit bosses. Quit the boss. You're working for a monster when you're serving yourself. And they're never going to say, good job, you finally made it. 
They're just going to demand more and more and more. And the day Solomon woke up and realized that, Ecclesiastes 2 explains, he said, I hated life. He was miserable. Sin didn't deliver what it promised. And so the Lord warns us in Proverbs 4, verse 14 through 15, Enter not into the path of the wicked. Go not in the way of evil men. Avoid it, pass not by it, turn from it, and pass away. When I think of this passage, I think of the ranting lectures of my father. My brother, my older brother and I, in the deep secrecy of the back pasture, had ways of mimicking the sound of his voice. He never heard that till the day he died, as is evidenced by the fact that my older brother and I are still alive. And mimicking the sound of his voice was intended to duplicate the repetitious cadence of him telling us over and over, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, in a variety of of colorful and memorable ways. And here the God of heaven comes before us like a good and stern father giving us that lecture. Don't enter the path of the wicked. Don't go in the way of evil men. Avoid it, pass not by it, turn from it, pass away six times in a row. He said, don't do it. It's almost like he's got us by the face and he's getting us up for one of those good nose-to-nose lectures you young people love to get from your parents. And he's driving the point home that the promise is a broken promise and it's been proven over and over. Satan is a liar. The world is a liar. The voice can't be trusted. Will you please listen instead to the voice of God? For his truth is absolute and his truth is right. And his truth is a way to lie. And he never broke a promise because he cannot lie. Work for the better boss. Come to Jesus instead. Thank you for listening to today's sermon podcast. If you have questions about what you have heard or would like to know more information, please contact us by emailing cfcwheelerarea at gmail.com or look us up on Facebook or Instagram and send us a message there.